Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Today we are discussing Blade Runner 2049, starring Ryan Gosling, Harrison Ford, Anna D. Armas, Dave Bautista, Robin Wright, and Jared Leto, directed by Denis Villeneuve. I think I said that right. Yes. It's something like that. It's Denise or Denis, I don't know. This is a hard name to pronounce. It is. <laughs> it's French. Well, this is Corbin, your co-host. I'm Alan from Chicago. And we are very excited to bring you our very first, it's not weekend release, it's the weekend or two or three <laughs> after. <laughs> yeah, by the time this goes up, it'll be the weekend It'll be two weeks after its release. Yes. But this is still our very first uh, new release review because everything else has already been released, available on home video, and they've all been uh, older, uh, comparatively, depending on your definition of older, I guess. But we're very excited to bring you our review of Blade Runner 2049. If you haven't heard our discussion analysis of the original 1982 blade runner and its many iterations and versions uh, make sure to check that out first because things we discuss in this will tie to the first film and it should be said that blade runner 2049 is coming out i believe it's been 35 years since the first one came out and In the movie timeline, though, it's just been 30 years. Right, because in the original, it was set in 2019, and this one's set in, obviously, 2049. Right, exactly. So it kind of makes sense. Keep the number even. It's been 30 years, 19 to 49. And this movie is very long for most cinemas today. Absolutely. Two hours and 45 minutes. Yes. The only other one I know... Wolf of Wall Street was very long. Yep. The Hateful Eight, Django Unchained. I didn't see any of those in theaters, but I know they were around this runtime. Right. Yeah, and those are from directors that you can just basically expect their movies to be long. The last one that technically was long, but then was cut down, was uh, Batman v Superman. And they cut it down to, oh. it was three hours, and I cut it down to two two thirty, And then they released that, that extended cut later on. And I was kind of thinking of Batman v Superman while watching this just because this film has the feel of an epic, I would say, just because of how long it is and how just the grandeur of it and what it's like trying to accomplish. Right. And I know Snyder always feels like he needs to make these super long movies like Batman v Superman because he's like trying to make them into, quote, an epic. Yeah, or Watchmen. Right, or Watchmen, and I'd say Watchmen's better than Batman v Superman. Yeah. But he he just always tries to do this, and he just doesn't know how to do it right. But Denis right. Villeneuve normally has these movies that are on the longer side, but he knows how to do it right, I would say. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this one's kind of different than, say, Watchmen, in the sense that this has the same like length as an epic would, but it doesn't really feel too much like an epic. It's not like... It's not like a character study like Watchmen is, because Watchmen has like a bunch of different characters 
we're seeing them change as they are as the past is catching up with them. Whereas with this one, it's a sense of like event discovery, whereas character discovery. That's not to say there are no characters here. There are, but I'm. That's just saying that's just how this film is constructed. So it's a bit of a different style. Yeah, uh, that's that's correct. And you'll notice Ridley Scott is not directing yeah. this film. He did not come back to direct. From my understanding, he picked the uh, picked to return to the Alien franchise over Blade Runner. So he's been doing that at the moment. Right. And I'm gonna throw it out there. I I just love Prometheus. Now, as a prequel to Alien, well that's different but if you can kind of divorce it from alien that i think as its own sci-fi movie i think it's a great sci-fi movie right all by itself and for me i also think that maybe not having ridley scott come back to direct it was probably a good choice because denis villeneuve what denis villeneuve does is does in this movie is crazy and we'll get into yeah. it and, and i think that ridley scott that he directed the original, I think that keeping that original with him is like just about as perfect as you can get and that he needs to move on to the different things because his newer style of film is completely different than his older style of making a film. And yeah, there, like I said before, there are things that Denis Villeneuve does in 2049 that are really crazy and that only one person who knows what he's doing, like Denis Villeneuve, can pull it off. I 100% agree and we'll leave our thoughts for the Alien franchise when we get to the Alien right. retrospective. But just seeing what Alien Covenant was, I'm really glad they went with a different director, especially a young, fresh director with just fresh talent and fresh eyes and who loves cinema and filmmaking. And I think Denis Villeneuve is one of, if not the best directors working today. Yeah. Just because of what he's been able to accomplish so oh, yeah. far. He's been a very in influential director. I mean, we we recorded a three-hour and 45-minute podcast on Prisoners, and yeah. that was released in 2012, so that's relatively new. So, yeah, he's definitely a voice that is becoming a, a big name because we also had a rival that won a few Oscars this last year, too, and it was yeah. put up for a nomination for Best Picture. And so, yeah, he's very much a big influence, and I'm glad that we have i'm glad that we have denis villeneuve and like christopher nolan and that are big directors now that are getting a lot of recognition and for their work yes and gosh i'd, I'd almost say denis villeneuve is like passing christopher nolan in filmmaking it, just after seeing this movie <laughs> right it, it kind of depends it kind of depends christopher nolan it they have two very different styles of film uh, of filmmaking because Christopher Nolan wants all of his films to be seen by everybody regardless of what is in the movie because all of his films since Memento have been well sorry Insomnia have been rated PG-13 and Christopher Nolan does a really good job at, at representing very complex ideas and themes in a way that is very simple for the audience to understand and Denis Villeneuve is kind of a bit different with that he he brings up very simple questions that have complex answers. Yeah. Well, and we discussed the depth and symbolism in Prisoners for three hours. Exactly. Yeah. And it just kind of goes to show how much of, how much there is in each one of his movies. Yes. But it should be said, Ridley Scott is 
still here in a produce producerial i just yes. made that word up <laughs> in a in a producing capacity and right. his son ridley scott's son luke scott was involved in creating two very very short uh simple prequels in a way to this and uh, make sure to listen to those on our channel um he did nexus dawn and i can't remember what it's called right now go listen to the podcast <laughs> and you'll know what it's called right yep him and shinjiro watanabe did three short films that lead up to the events of 2049 yeah he did the first one blackout 2022 gotcha. right listen to those because they're important i think at least at least blackout is in this next one well and even the batista one is too and we'll discuss that here in a second but currently right now on imdb blade runner holds an eight eight point five and it is number 52 in the top rated movies on imdb right and this is kind of surprising usually when a movie comes out it starts with a super high rating and then of course it yeah. drops significantly once people get to go see it and then drops even more once it comes out on onto home media this one's kind of kind of interesting. It started with a relatively high score, but then dropped a little bit. I think it started with like an 8.9, and then it dropped to an 8.5. And it stayed at 8.5 for quite a while. I'm sure it'll probably drop as things go on, because this is only week two of, its being, of it being out. So, yeah. Right. And currently, it does have 89,000 like, people who have re done the star review on IMDb, if that right. makes sense. Right. So that's... a pretty significant amount you don't like worry about the score until it's at least over a few thousand yeah and the original blade runner has over ha half of a million right but nevertheless that's a pretty significant score and technically at the moment this 8.5 is higher than the original blade runner which right. is an 8.2 and that's pretty significant now for the budget it has 150 million and i mean by today's standards that's i mean it's pretty good i mean it's not like anything outrageous right yeah that's that's pretty standard for a big blockbuster right. and it is amazing what they're able to do with that money oh yeah and opening weekend it was number one with 32.7 million pretty small there and i know that they raked in not as much cash as they thought they would, and they were kind of disappointed that they only raked in yeah. $39 million. And to be fair, it's kind of at the point in this in the movie season that it they just got off of summer, the summer blockbusters, and they're kind of moving into Oscar bait season. And so this movie came out at a really good time because there's like nothing coming out right now. But that's also kind of bad because there's nothing coming out right now, and it's rated R. <laughs> So there's and it's almost three hours long. And it's almost three hours long. It's just kind of a recipe for disaster, almost. But and it's a sequel thirty years later. Exactly, a movie that not many people have probably heard of. So it's kind of a recipe for disaster for the movie. That's not to say that the movie's bad, but the fact that everything right. everything surrounding the movie just doesn't seem to add up to be something that audiences would want to go spend their time, three hours of their time on. Yeah. And in today's society of kind of just a flood of mindless movies where, you know, just silly jump scare movies or 
big explosion transformer movies whatever movies that don't really have a lot of intelligence to them and that's what audiences have become used to that's just the direction cinema's gone it makes sense that not a lot of people have gone out to see this movie because i know i went and saw it opening weekend and after a certain point i could tell the audience was getting restless there were some groans there were some people kind of tapping their feet like saying where's this movie going get on with it just the modern attention span isn't that long right and especially considering with the dawn of home video and the pause button you know you can watch movies in sections and parts you can pause it and get snacks you know you can do this and that right so this was a very ambitious project that i think is worthy because i can tell it was done lovingly and for the love of cinema absolutely you know and for the love of storytelling and not just for a not not a cash grab right so but at the time of this recording the movie's been out for uh this is the second week so it has grossed 60.5 million foreign it's grossed 98 million worldwide it's grossed 158.5 million so technically it has made back its budget right and i'm i'm really praying that it'll keep doing better not necessarily because everybody's like, oh, I wanted to do so well so we can get a sequel. That's not necessarily my reasoning. I just want movies like this to do well because, well, this is what cinema is all about, pretty much. And we'll definitely get into why we think it, because I'm in complete agreement with you, because this is one of those films that, regardless of everything surrounding it, you need to go see it because it is that good. And to be honest, I watched this film twice in theaters. In my first viewing, I I didn't really know what to think when I walked out of the theater. And I took my notebook with me and I took some vigorous notes because I wanted to make sure that I got everything. And we'll talk about it. But I missed one scene. Well, I'll, I'll, well, when we get there, I'll talk about what scene I missed. And it was a pretty integral scene. Um, I talked to me, Corbin and I were talking about this before the before we started this podcast and he was and he laughed at me because it was a it was an important scene and I'm actually kind of embarrassed to say that I I missed it but regardless <laughs> it's very important I think and it wouldn't surprise me that this gets up for a, a few Oscars and maybe a best picture oh, nom I'm, I can see this definitely get a be, getting a best picture nomination so I guess we'll see to only time will tell what happens with this one but this is a film that if you haven't seen it please go see it because it it's very, I'd say it's very important, especially in yeah. today's society, which is, like you said, kind of what film's all about. Yeah, we we just really need this movie to succeed, and I'm really praying that we will be discussing this movie in multiple categories right. when the Oscar season comes. Right, yeah, same, because there's, there's, a, there's a lot here, not just storytelling-wise, yes. but in terms of effects, in terms of, you know, makeup and all sorts of stuff. There's a lot of stuff here that looks yeah. just... Like you said, like some love and care is put into it. And at the end of the day, for me, I can a movie can be complete garbage. But if it but if there's love put into the movie, it raises the score infinitely more just because you can tell that there is just this this love and care that a director put into his work. Like like legit, not just one that oh we're just gonna pump out another one just because we need it to, or to make right. more money or something like that. No, like there's actually genuine love and care. Like someone took time to write the script, time to edit the movie, time to write the blocking, to set the shots, everything like that. And I, there's a one movie on the, off the top of my head that I can think of is it's called Instructions Not Included. There is a review for it on the website. Silverscreenguide.wordpress.com. 
Now, the movie is, as I said in the review, the movie is very silly. And it's off the wall. But the reason why I almost fell in love with the movie is because there is so much care. And everyone on the project wanted to make it succeed so much that it came off to me as a much better film than anyone would probably even bat an eye at. Which, at the end of the day, for me, is one of the things, as I said before, one of the things that I really look for and really like to see is, regardless of however much money you, you spill into your work, if it says something that you want someone to know or you want the audience to, to know or learn, that's the most important part. Right. 100% agree. Right. And that's how movie making used to be Right. back in the day when there was like no such thing as a budget, pretty much, because comparative to today and... You know, people didn't care how long it was, so I'm hoping we get back to that point. Yeah. But before we go any further, we want to say there's going to be uh, spoilers all throughout the podcast. So if you haven't seen Blade Runner 2049, please hit pause right now. Run down to your local cinema, check it out, come back, and hit play because you won't want this movie to be spoiled for you. Yes. I can... Just don't do exactly. it. Exactly. It, it's This is one of those that... You really should just see for yourself before we get into spoiling things. Yes. And within two hours and 44 minutes, precisely, there is quite a bit that goes on that, to give you a complete plot summary, would be kind of tricky. Yeah. I would say. There's a lot here. A lot. But... Roughly, for those of you who have seen the film and you want to, you want a little refresher. I, I'll try and refresh you <laughs> right now as best I can. But essentially, what it is, it takes place. It picks up thirty years later in California, the same place, Los Angeles, and there, the Tyrell Corporation, who made the original replicants, is now out of business. The Wallace Corporation is now making replicants. And Ryan Gosling, who is who is dubbed K, that's his like serial number. He is a he's a Blade Runner, but the new Blade Runners are replicants. So basically, the movie opens with him tracking down Bautista, who we did see in the third uh, short film, uh, 2048. I think it's called like Nowhere to Run, and. Basically, he is trying to finish off the Nexus 8s, and there's the new line of Nexus, like, 9, I believe, something like that. And uh, society has become even more degraded, and what happens is, is they find a body buried out under this tree, which is a surprise because trees are dead in this world. <laughs> no oxygen, I guess. <laughs> Who needs it? And... They find out that this, this, this bones, like these bones was actually a replicant and it actually was pregnant and supposedly gave birth. So Kay spends his time trying to track down the child and through a series of events that we'll get into, he believes that he is the child because of this supposed implanted memory, or maybe it's not, maybe it's actually a real memory. And... Uh, eventually, he uh, tracks down Harrison Ford in Las Vegas. They are found out 
Harrison Ford is captured because supposedly he may carry the secret to life to creating the replicants because the Walls Corporation wants the replicants to self-populate and breed because so he doesn't have to keep doing all the, the legwork apparently and making them. And we do come to find out that K is not the chosen one. And he's able to rescue Harrison Ford and Deckard, I should say. And we find out in a pretty good twist, I thought, that this uh, lady is the the daughter of Rachel, who, who carried the baby, and Deckard. So that's a really simplified, quick refresher of a plot summary. Uh, we'll get into the other things that I right. skipped over. But, yeah, and I also want to talk about how this movie seems eerily similar to some other movies that have come <laughs> out in the past few years. And I'm like, that's pretty much the same thing. Right, right. <laughs> uh, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. To begin the movie, I was very surprised to see that we began with Batista's character. And he played such a small role, considering he was in the trailers and he had his own short movie. Right, right. But I, I understand he served his purpose, and we learned a lot of information. Oh yeah, in the there, yeah, a lot is thrown at us in just the first few lines. We find out that Ryan Gosling is a replicant. The Nexus Eights are more or less for farming. He's lived there all by himself. He find we find the bones that end up being the bones of a replicant underneath the tree. Rachel. Yeah, right. Ends up yeah ends up being Rachel from the last movie, which is. Um, Harrison Ford ran off with her at the very end of Blade Runner from 1982. We found out a bunch of stuff. Not only that, but we also get a pretty good sense of the outskirts of the world because in the opening shots, after we see the eye, which is, ends up being Harrison Ford's eye, just like from the beginning of the of the original. Um, really? Yeah, it is. And I this I caught that in my second viewing. This is Harrison Ford's eye at the, in the opening because you can kind of tell by the gray eyelashes and stuff. And so, anyways, as Ryan Gosling is flying over this, like, white landscape, and it's kind of like these boxy things, that, this bo these boxes, and I thought, oh, is that kind of like farmland? And then the camera ends up panning down and gets kind of closer, and you realize, no, those are tents. That's like a suburb, you know, essentially. And then you fly over, and then it's just like this barren wasteland, and just a single tree in a small farm out in the middle of just nowhere. And you kind of get this pretty good sense of the outskirts of the of the Los Angeles uh, region and it's kind of interesting because it also kind of plays into the original Blade Runner and how the opening both both openings begin with like a replicant being retired essentially or in the original supposedly retired and then in this one he has uh, a change so and yeah Grant Gosling ends up retiring this right. replicant and all sorts of stuff so it yeah it's there are definitely some parallels from this from the original to this one yes and I am just immediately captivated by the cinematography, the visual effects, and even the sound, uh, the sound effects. Just there's like so much attention to detail with the sound. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we've got we've got Roger Deakins back, which is not surprised that I yes. would see him coming back because this is Denny's really new, and he's used Roger Deakins on a lot of his projects. Nearly everything, almost. Was Arrival? I don't think Arrival was done by Roger Deakins. I know Prisoners was in Sicario. Pretty sure. Yeah, Prisoners was, and this one, yeah, this one's also done by Roger Deakins, and you can tell. This is this film looks like like a Roger Deakins film, and with everything else that he's done, it yes. looks amazing. 
That's just yes, irrefutable. I mean, <laughs> there's like nothing bad I can say about the cinematography, really. I don't think I have any issues with it at right. all or with the visual effects. It's just such a visual treat. It's incredible. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely worthy of best cinematography and I would say worthy of best visual effects. By the by the end, we'll we'll see if it's worth any more. But I, I think this movie has to win at least one. And I'd say probably for cinematography. Hopefully it wins a lot because there's a lot here and there's a lot of really good stuff here. Yes. Now, let's talk about the plot because, as you said, the plot is fairly simple, but I think it gets, it, it gets muddled in a lot of areas. There's just so many, like, quick dropped lines or there's just so many, so many details right. where it just, I don't know, it's just hard to catch up with this plot, I would say. I'll bring this up now. One of the things, for me at least, is that I, when I first watched it my first time, I was getting a lot of information, and I was understanding a lot of information. And there were things I was picking up on that, that I was like, okay, is this, this what this is? And then the end of the film, that is what that was. And I was like, okay, so I was right the whole time. There were small things like that. And for me, see, I don't know if this is a... I don't know if this is like a detriment to the film or not, is that the film is kind of easy to understand in, in ways like you can follow the plot and you'll understand like everything, you know, and for me at least, and I was able to understand a lot. And when I watched it the second time, there were things that I noted. There were only a couple of things that I didn't see the first time I watched it. And for me, maybe on repeat viewings, like third and fourth or fifth time, that'll become an issue because then there's nothing new that I'm learning here. But at the same time, it's also good because then normal audiences can't pick up on things that are dropped. But I will agree, there are things that are kind of muddled in this movie, especially towards the latter half. There are things that yeah. I was, even I was confused on even on the second viewing, which I really shouldn't have been, I don't feel like. I felt the pacing of this movie was pretty good, except there's oh, yeah. always this issue in movies where you kind of like hit this middle mark and then the movie kind of slumps for a while because you've got like, a meaty beginning and a meaty end and because there's like paramount things that have to happen clearly the beginning and end but with the middle it's just kind of like okay where are we going here we need to get there you know right that's that's how i felt right see i didn't feel that at all in my first viewing i felt like when i walked out of this movie i felt like an hour had passed and this is almost a three-hour film really yeah and for me i thought the pacing was almost perfect because there. It is a two-hour and 45-minute film, but for me, it, like I said, felt like maybe an hour. And if you can do that with a two-and-a-half-hour movie, y you've done it right, I feel like. So I didn't have any of those wow. issues that you were talking about. Especially my second viewing, it may have felt longer, but it didn't feel like three hours. Wow. So for me, it did feel like... It felt like three hours. Really? Or more. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because I love Gone with the Wind and that's four hours. I'll sit down and watch that in one sitting. Right. I have no problem with long movies. And I, like I said, I think the pacing is, is great. But to me, I felt it because, I don't know, like, and especially by the time we do get to Harrison Ford, I'm like, whoa, we've been here for like two hours yeah. at least or something. 
it just felt like and I, that's like that's what an epic is like lawrence of arabia dr zhivago gone with the wind those are epics and they are very very long long much much longer than this movie the lord of the rings the return of the king is probably one of the most recent and that was four and a half hours long right so i felt the runtime but i don't know I, I like loved every minute of it except like i said there was just probably this middle section where it was just like where are we going with this movie? <laughs> right. Where 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 is the plot going to take us? Right. And maybe maybe we'll get there as we move through this series of events. Because I didn't, I didn't have that at all when I watched it both times. But I think I might I think I, I might know what you're talking about. Yeah. I I really enjoyed uh, Ryan Gosling's character. Oh, absolutely. In this movie, I really felt for him. I think one of the most surprising things that I felt during this movie was the relationship that he has with his kind of like hologram wife, I guess. Right. I found myself actually really touched by their relationship just because Ryan Gosling is clearly, his character K is really wanting just this human touch and some kind of affection and just wants to come home to somebody Absolutely. and when they're like in the rain and they're like so close to like touching and kissing but they can't I'll, my heart was breaking honestly because i'm like man what a horrible sad life to be like that close but like so so far and just get interrupted like that and it's just oh i really felt for him yeah exactly and this is brought up later too about about a little bit over halfway there's the scene with the hooker who comes in and then the hologram kind of like overlays her skin with the hooker's skin. So it's kind of like she's become now physical formed. And yeah, there kind of, there is a big theme in here about like what exactly is true love, you know, because yeah, whether or not you think Ryan Gosling is a human or a replicant, we'll get to that in a second. It's irrefutable that he has some feelings for Joy, which is the hologram's name is Joy, J-O-I. Right. Which is kind of interesting. And so we have this giant, this huge theme of love. And this is kind of touched on in the original, um, but not nearly to the extent that this one was. And essentially with this one, it's like, it's gotten to the point now in this in this world, with the, this created world, that even holograms that have just like... Artificial intelligence. Yeah, artificial intelligence. They are so lifelike that you can have a relationship with them. So when Ryan Gosling gets that new thing, the stick or the emanator, I think is what it's called. And she's able to walk around with him and like essentially go with him where he wants her to go instead of just being in the house. It's it, even Ryan Gosling. He's like, yeah, this is a, this is a, a step up. And the first thing they do is they go outside in the rain and she almost quote unquote kisses him. And yeah. And they have this, this kind of moment until of course he's interrupted by his job and stuff like that. But it's, yeah, we have this big theme of love, and I'm sure we'll explore that a bit more as we go on because it gets pretty complicated, and especially if you have replicants that are that are beginning to understand what love is, then we have a bit of an maybe a bit of an issue, you know. There is, like you said, there's like a really big commentary on what is love, but what also is like how is that in context with like our human sexuality? I guess exactly. Because this movie does feature some interesting choices of nudity, I would say. Yeah. But in a way, I can understand it just like I could understand the nudity in Denis Villeneuve's Enemy with Jake Gyllenhaal. And what I kind of gleaned from that is 
that in 2049, humanity is now, or even life, I guess, is like nothing special. Right. Because humans can make life, you know, nearly perfect. And like Wallace, played by Jared Leto, is nearly kind of like God in this way. Like he's this blind guy who can like create these people and but they really don't have any value and that's when it gets tricky and interesting because then it come then we come to find out that a replicant a created artificial human is able to become pregnant and produce a baby exactly which is really crazy concept right yeah it's it's very it's a very scary concept if you really think about it if like say Say this film were to become some sort of reality where we have artificial humans that are doing things for the real humans because they just don't want to do them. Like slave labor is one of the big things for them. Later on, oops, they can actually procreate now. Like, what are we supposed to do with that? And there's one scene where that is very much explored. And it's the scene that I'd missed. And it's towards the end of the film. But essentially, Ryan Gosling is saved by the hooker because... She, by a series of events, she puts a little tracker in her in his jacket. All sorts of things happen. And one of the things that they talk about, because he is discovered by the by these replicants who are going to uprise against uh, the Wallace, like well, the Wallace Company. And so one of the things they say is that we can procreate now, which means and now that if we die for the right cause, we are now more human than humans are, which is incredibly powerful and scary. Because now we have artificial humans making even more artificial humans. And one of the things they say is that if the word that there's a child out there that was born from a replicant gets out, it will break the world. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's kind of right. I, if this film were to, if this were to become a reality and we come to find out that one of the like, robots that we've created are now able to procreate themselves and they're like biologically... They're biological robots. It's a bit of an issue because in that sense, it kind of asks the question, then what's the point of humans in the first place? If we have artificial humans that are already better than their, than the real humans, then what is the point for the humans to exist at that point? And it kind of sounds like a cliche, and I have down in my notes that it sounds like a cliche, but this is a sure case in the what I like to call the inside-out syndrome, where they take a cliche but they use it in such a way that it becomes not a cliche anymore. Because with Inside Out, you know, they had all the different personalities in the head, but they used that cliche to explain the story and explain the inner workings of our actual minds instead of just a throwaway movie, you know. And in this one, they have that theme of robot uprisings against their human, their human masters, and because they are now self-aware, it brings to a whole new level of like procreation. We're better than actual humans now because we can do this. Yes. And I like what you said because it kind of takes this cliche and it turns it in a whole new direction. Right. I feel because I, I believe that like cliche has been heavily popularized by Terminator, you know, rise of the machines. What happens when they become self-aware and they try to overthrow right. us? Well, I'm kind of on the replicant side in this because the replicant the replicants are have been hunted and outlawed and they desperately value life right 
And now that it's possible for a replicant, and we only know of one so far, this child that Rachel bore right. that was procreated with Deckard. To me, this doesn't seem like, oh no, what happens if this this happens? To me, this seems like, and this kind of ties back with what I was saying earlier, is that like human sexuality has become so degraded, it's like so marketable. Because at the end, K, there's like this giant naked woman hologram, and it's joy. And it's just like, that, that'd be crazy if that actually was. And it's, it's scary because that's getting close to our world today. Yeah, exactly. Where sex, sex sells, sex is so marketable, and there's really no value in human sexuality or procreation anymore. And this movie is, as we said, the first one is has biblical themes and i say this one takes it even farther oh absolutely than that and i think one of the most mind-blowing lines in this movie that i think truly kind of made it an epic and just truly incredible is when deckard and wallace are talking and wallace says to deckard he quotes genesis he quotes scripture and he says and god opened rachel's womb and i was like oh okay Mind is blown right. right now. Exactly. Because I'm like, that is so perfect. That is just so incredible and perfect. Because for those of you who don't know, in the book of Genesis, the story of Abraham, him and Sarah, or Rachel, I'm sorry, were like a hundred years old or something. And she's like, I can't bear kids. It, basically, he in the book, he gives her the ability to bear children. And I, I don't know. I was just so mind blown by that. Because I was like, yeah. That's it. And so this kind of leads me to believe that humanity is done. And it's like these replicants that are really more human than human now, which was the old Tyrell slogan. It like leads me to believe like they are God's chosen people now. Right. You know, humanity has totally lost its way and life and the truth has still found a way because they value life and i i don't know i was just really blown away by that oh yeah absolutely absolutely and yeah it's just kind of crazy to think that that this cliche of something that we created is kind of backfiring on us but takes it to a level that's scarily realistic as much as this film is set in the future notice how it's only set for 2049 and not like 2186 or something like that you know not like so far into the future that it's almost an impossible it's almost impossible to think of what's going to happen that far into the future it's only only about 40 years 42 yeah 42 years from now no 32 years from now when this recording happened and yeah you're like you were saying it's it's scary because sex in this world has become so marketable and stuff like that that even in the scene that I talked about just a second ago, when the when the hologram overlays her her skin with the hooker's skin, or when the scene at the very end of that scene it cuts to an, an outside shot of the city and you see a billboard for Joy and it's her face is like the hologram or whatever and it says anything you want whatever you want or all that or whatever the slogan is on the bottom but it essentially says it'll do whatever you want it to do you know it's maybe a hologram but you can have it do whatever you want it to do and it's. It's kind of a scary reality that that this movie is self-aware enough that this is a bad thing. Maybe the film isn't saying it's a bad thing, but maybe it's just kind of bringing it up to bringing it up to the audience to be aware of. But at the same time, 
Well, I think it is. At the same time, though, it's it still asks the question of what is true love? Because with Ryan Gosling's character, he may be a replicant, right? Or he may not be. We'll have to talk about that. But at the same time, it has this theme of what is true love. And that's one of the more, that's the bigger theme. It is, it's also not last one, but it's huge here. Yes. And we also see, like, the the hookers, we see, like, this, like, sex bar or something. Yeah. Like, people are kind of, like, having sex through this frosted glass. And I was like, wow. I was like, that is really disturbing. But it seems about right because the humans have become so animalistic with just their debased desires and animal instincts. Right, exactly. That they're just giving in to the the sex. And also when we see the 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 replicant, that completely naked replicant that Wallace creates. Right. And he says that we've colonized nine worlds. And he's like, but I need them to recreate so we can just colonize the entire galaxy. And he, I mean, he truly has a God complex and thinks he is God. Oh, yeah. And he says, but I can't figure out how to get... He's like, I can figure out the space out there, but I can't figure out the space here, which I thought was really poetic and nice. And he puts his hand on her womb. Right. He can't figure out how to get them to procreate. And he attributes it to Tyrell. He thinks Tyrell figured out the code of actually having, instead of like just making these replicants through artificial means, them literally, you know, having intercourse and creating uh, children. Right. He thinks Tyrell did that, but I don't believe so. I believe that it's kind of like what Bautista's character said in the beginning. He says, you've never seen a miracle. And that's what I think it is. I think Deckard and Rachel procreating is a miracle. And it's of biblical proportions. And clearly, Wallace knows that too, or else he wouldn't be quoting scripture. Right. But And it also shows you that humanity is not completely supreme because wallace can't figure it out he can make a human but he can't have them truly do that and that just even though humanity thinks like we can get like so technologically advanced like there's still no way that we can like create something that will procreate right itself and and there's even one line that harrison ford says when him and ryan gosling are talking because ryan gosling finds out that kind of find out through a series of events when the kid was born from Rachel. They made a plan to hide the kid completely because they did not want this to get out, which is smart because, as we find out later, it would break the world, right? And so one of the things that Harrison Ford had to do for his side of the plan was to get out and to just leave. And so he was gone before the child was even born. And Ryan Gosling said to him, well, how could you even do that? You know, how could you just leave? And he said, sometimes to love someone means to be a stranger. And I thought that was just a yeah. really interesting line because, but I mean, if you really think about it, it makes sense because if, if Harrison Ford was to stay with that child, they would have been, they most likely would have been discovered. And if someone found them and found out that Rachel, this replicant had procreated, that's not good. That's really not good. And so the plan was to just hide her, hide the child and get out, you know, just to act like she never existed, you know, on all this kind of stuff, because if that got around, that would be bad. And society, what and whatever is left of humanity at this point, because if you, okay, if you really think about it, the world that 2049 is set in is very much anti-humanity. And right. it's in a sense where now we have, we have replicants that can do anything that we don't want to do. 
And that was the theme from the original. They were just meant for they were just doing you know slave work and essentially all that all that kind of stuff. And then of course they ended up they ended up revolting, so they moved him off somewhere else. And so now they've gotten to the point where they're so advanced that they don't have this this thing to, that makes them revolt. Of course, then we find out later they do. But essentially, it, the humanity's devolved into a into a sense where it's maybe the replicants are right. What else of humanity is there if we're, I mean, they're already better than humans to their minds, and what the replicants are made for, it's almost like there is no reason for humanity because they do everything for them, and they're doing nothing. And in that sense, it's just kind of like, yeah, maybe the replicants are right in this situation because if they can already do more than humans gonna, are going to do, then why? what is the point for humans to exist? And that's a kind of a turnaround from the first film, right. because in the first film, the replicants want more life, and they realize there's no way for them to have any more life, and they come to the realization that they're really nothing special. Right, You know, exactly. Even though they're this, like, amazing creation, they're like, we can't give you more life, you're just going to die, you know, we built you that way. You were built as well as we could have made you. Right. Whereas now in this, it's like, well, humanity is actually nothing special, but the replicants are these really special beings. And I think something that's, I don't think I've heard anybody else talk about this, but I think it's its really possible it could have been thought of uh, when crafting this story, is Roy Vatty is in some way kind of a Christ figure, at least he is in the end of the first Blade Runner. Because we see him push, pierce the nail through his hand, right. just like Christ was crucified with the nails through his hands. And we also see him holding a dove, which is clearly a sign of the Holy Spirit. Ridley Scott clearly knew these, you know, Christian images when he put them in the film. And at the end, he says, time to die. And then the, the dove ascends. And then 30 years later, we're getting this kind of, it's time for these replicants to really live. And so it almost seems like, I don't know, that in a way was kind of a miracle and Deckard kind of saw that, that miracle. And I'm wondering if in some way that's connected, if that, beginning with that kind of like messianic death of that replicant kind of kicked it off for the rest of these replicants 30 years later, you know, and right. if you remember Christ's kind of like spiritual and cultural revolution took place 30 years after he was born right so there's a there's a lot to be explored with that i feel and i think there is a connection there oh yeah that i just now thought of and discovered absolutely yeah and the yeah like like with every podcast when we do this kind of discussion we always find out more things in the film that we personally <laughs> didn't know just by talking to each other and yeah yeah, one of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking just now is now we know that replicants can, in fact, procreate because of Rachel. Is there such thing as a perfect replicant? Like one, because let's say we take it to genetics and let's say that they work the same, roughly the same way as human genetics do, where you have you have the two pairs come together and you get traits from each one. And then that becomes, you know, your personality, your body type, all that kind of stuff, you know. The basics of the basics of procreation for on a human form. So, if say we have a replicant that's good at farming and really really strong, and a replicant that is good at 
something else, you know, have them come together and then those two personalities, uh, those two chromos the chromosomes or whatever is made up of them come together and then they join together and then that person mates with somebody else and it just keeps going. Would there be a pinnacle, like the perfect replicant and everything after that is the perfect replicant? Well, I would say that's probably what Wallace is trying to eventually work towards, um, which is very, I don't know, Hitlerian um, with kind of creating the perfect race right, yeah. in a way. Um, I wouldn't, I don't think that's, that's possible. I think it's interesting. And I think that's exactly the point of what they want. They want to create like this perfect species of humans, but they can't. And we we even see like at the end in that super intense fight yeah. uh, between Kay and Wallace's, I don't know, assassin replicant. She says, I am the best. And she thinks she's probably this perfect replicant. And we find out she's not. Um, and I think these replicants are not becoming like more perfect. I think they're becoming more, I don't know human i guess right if that makes sense right um so they're not like becoming these like lofty angelic beings but they're becoming more human they're kind of replacing the humans in that way whereas the humans are becoming more like the animals right so in that case then we probably should get into since we're already here we might as well get into officer k is he a replicant yeah. or a human because there seems to be evidence that once again goes both ways in this situation maybe one maybe it leans towards one more than the other because in the opening week it's clearly defined that officer k is in fact a replicant i think what's more ambiguous is whether deckard is replicant right or a human but I've, i'm pretty sure the final verdict is that k is still a replicant and i believe that because uh bautista says you know you're, do you feel bad like killing your own kind and he confirms that he is but then it's called into question when he he believes it's an implanted memory right and then he goes to that place and he's like oh my gosh this is the horse is still buried there in this kind of weird warehouse place right. so then he believes pretty much that he's a human and he is probably the child of deckard and rachel and then we come to find that uh, he is not the child and the lady who is kind of in charge of this revolution, she says, we all wish it was us. And we learned that those memories of the horse are of uh, Deckard and Rachel's daughter, who is the lady who creates the memories. And that's why when Kay showed her that memory, she cried so much and he talked about he's like is it legal to put like real memories into a replicant and she's like well that's actually illegal but we all have we like i put a bit of myself into everybody right. that i do except that one i'm pretty sure is a pretty close memory if it's not the full memory so i believe the deciding factor is that k is replicant and something else that should be noted that kind of confirms that i feel is he's able to take a lot of punches and stabs and live. And even when they're trying to flee Las Vegas, when Deckard goes in because he's about to get in the car and he locks the door behind him, Kay like busts through that cement wall. Right. Remember that? Yeah. Which would be pretty much impossible for a human. For like a good half of the movie, 
I did believe that Kay was actually a human and he had been tricked somehow, but then I'm pretty sure it reconfirms that he is a replicant. Right. And see, I'm kind of on the opposite end of that because I'm thinking that that Officer K is more of a human than he's replicant. And one of my bigger things of that is, turns out, the dream that he has, or the memory that he has of the horse, is a real one. Which we find that out about midway through the film, that that's a real memory, which is not, which is interesting. And then that's why he gets the idea, okay, maybe I'm the child, you know. And my understanding was... That was his memory from when he was a kid. But then when he moved on to something else, he was conditioned to be more like a replicant than he was like a human. And then we also have the baseline test that he goes into that white room and has the camera and that guy just questions him back and forth, you know, and he says inline or cell or whatever, you know. And when in that point, he is conditioned to replace himself from what he just went through to be more like a replicant, to be more like a stone wall. Than, a, than more of a human where he has to react to that kind of a thing. And then later on in the movie when things started to unfold, they do the baseline test again, come to find out he's way off. And because of that, he's way off, they have to kick him off and they're like, they're going to come for you, you need to get out of here. And that's when he gets out and leaves, you know. And I also have reason that in the scene when he finds out that the memory that he has is real, his reaction is very out of line with for his character because he like he sits there and he goes it's real isn't it and the and then the doctor the daughter says yeah and he like freaks out and he kicks the chair and he for a minute he loses it because that means that his entire life is essentially a lie at that point because if he really is a human then everything that he's been conditioned to do is not is for something that is not real like technically it's artificial whereas he as a human you know is much different than that so yeah who knows maybe he maybe there is more evidence that means one way or another and there's just stuff that we're both missing or maybe he is one or the other i i don't know i feel like i feel like that he might be a human more than he would be a replicant but there is stuff that goes kind of both ways yes and i believe the movie like wants to lead you to believe that for at least a clearly he begins as a replicant but then yes. the movie wants you to think he's human but then i think I'll, I'll have to revisit it but i'm pretty sure we come to find out that yeah he's he's still a replicant and that memory was the girl right i don't think the movie necessarily states that that he is or is not a replicant at the end but it does say that he thought he was the child and then yeah she's like no you weren't the child there was definitely a ruse set up to kind of mask the the newborn daughter that was a replicant, and we have that scene where he's looking through all of the all the DNA files and stuff like that. Yeah, and then he ends up finding two matches, and it's a boy and a girl, and they're both just gone. Right, and the girl, I believe the girl said, it said the girl was dead. Yes, but that was to to hide her exactly because yeah. she wasn't dead, and that's because clearly his daughter is the lady that's encased in that glass because of her immune system, which I think is kind of a bogus story. I think that's meant to keep her safe so she doesn't get out. Right. Okay, this brings up two things that I wanted to touch on. Okay. Is I felt that when Kay has this revelation about that wasn't a little boy in the memory, that was a little girl. 
I felt like that was too close to Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises when we find out that Bane is not the little kid from that prison pit. Right. It's a little girl. It, it, that's Talia al Ghul. Well, spoiler alert for Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> right. Um, you should have seen it by now. But you get what I'm saying? Because yeah, yeah. I don't know. I was just sitting in a the theater. I'm like, okay, this is basically the kind of the twist from The Dark Knight Rises. Right. I can definitely see what you get from that. My only thing is with The Dark Knight Rises, at least with 2049, it didn't trick you into believing this lie and then lying to you again and say, oh, yeah, no, this is the truth all along. Whereas in 2049, it clearly states one is the other. And then when you find out the revelation, it didn't trick you. It was just, that was the revelation in which it had been revealed to you. Not not necessarily kind of lying to your face. Because Dark Knight Rises kind of did that where it's like, oh, yeah, it was totally a man that was the one who escaped from the pit. And then it turns out, no, it was actually Talia al Ghul and Bane helped or whatever. Yeah, and the other, well, the problem that I did have with The Dark Knight Rises was the choice, where I'm thankful they didn't do that with this in 2049, because Joe, it was the actress Joey King, who is in a number of things right. that are not really, you know, off the beaten path that nobody's heard of. So I, when I was watching, I was like, okay, that's interesting. Christopher Nolan picked a girl, Joey King, to play a boy's part right. in this. And then it happens to be a girl. I'm like, well, that kind of ruined it for me because I already knew that was a girl. Whereas with this, I did not know. I thought that was a little boy. Right. Who was getting beat up trying to hide the horse. Right. And I thought that was a little boy. And then I was like, oh, okay, I guess I can see it now with short hair. But so that was good. They didn't make that mistake. <laughs> You're right. It is kind of similar to The Dark Knight Rises, but I'm just kind of glad that it doesn't lie to your face about what exactly the twist is you know <laughs> yeah i agree yeah but the other thing that i thought it was a little similar to was deckard and rachel's daughter was kind of similar to ray in star wars episode 7 the force awakens mm -hmm. because in 2049 she's like well my parents left me and went off world and i i can't leave this place you know and blah 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 and ray in star wars we clearly see a memory of her of her being left there. Right. You know, and she never leaves Jakku until a certain point. So that's really similar. Right. Yeah, you you're, see it? you're right. I see it. I see it. I definitely see it. And, yeah, I would say at least with this one, I guess we can we talk to the, whether it's good or bad, her raises parents' decision to leave her on Jakku because we haven't been revealed who exactly the parents are yet. Right. But at least with Blade Runner... It was definitely a safe cause because otherwise the entire world would just implode on itself if they find out that she is uh, a a child of a replicant, you know. I mean, it's not really that big of a deal. Right. It's not really that big of a problem. But for a movie that is really its own thing and creative, I was a little surprised to see those plot points were pretty similar right. to recent films yeah at the same time though with the daughter being left where she was at i feel like that's comparative to everything else in the movie story-wise that's pretty pretty minuscule it's more or less just yeah, a choice sure. that they needed to make um that made sense sure. you know not necessarily one that needs to that needs to fit in the story uh literally or allegorically or something like that 
Yeah. Well, let's get to the big issue. There's no right or wrong answer yeah. as of yet, but do you believe that Deckard is a replicant? I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that Deckard is a human because how was he able to impregnate Rachel if he was a replicant? And it's very clear that Deckard is an if he is a replicant, he's an older kind of replicant. And it's stated in the movie that it was kind of Tyrell's plan all along for for Deckard and Rachel to get together. And in which case That's a possibility. Yes. In which case wouldn't Deckard need to be a human for Rachel to essentially and be impregnated, you know? And that's of course in terms of the human biology being similar to the biology that's put into the replicants that are being made as well. So in that case, yes. I would say that Deckard would be a human at this point. It does bring up more questions as to if he is or isn't, but I would say he definitely, for me, I'd say he is a, he is a human because in that case, how would Joel have gotten pregnant? Because if she was, if she was made special, then in the speculation, of course, if she was made special, then wouldn't you need a human male to begin it? Or is this, or what's so special, or in this case, did they even make replicants, male replicants to even have the remote possibility if their job was to say, blade, be a Blade Runner, the remote possibility of procreation in the first place, or even pleasure or something like that. Yeah, and I, I can't like 100% say one way or the other, I'm not gonna do that, I'm not gonna definitively say. Right that he is or isn't but i'm feeling that the evidence leans towards him being a replicant and and i'm really glad they didn't really say one way or the other because right. i feel it's not necessary and i like the mystery of whether he is or isn't but okay in the first movie there's the unicorn sequence in right. the unicorn at the end that's an interesting correlation and then in this new movie we learned that k is a replicant and he's a blade runner and i was like okay i was kind of thinking in the first movie because with the dawn of the replicants came the dawn of blade runners also so i was like right. okay that kind of makes sense a replicant to hunt down a replicant you know and they won't even know they're replicants and they can live for a long time and i I believe Rachel is probably a Nexus 7 uh, because the Nexus 6s were dead. And if Deckard is a replicant, then he would probably have to be a Nexus 7 also. And something was very interesting and kind of brings back to that theological discussion that's in this movie. When Wallace says, how do you know that you weren't programmed by Tyrell to meet Rachel and for you two to procreate and I don't believe that's the case at all because that's a very kind of predestination almost Calvinistic view of God right where it's like I've already decided what to do and I really love the line when Deckard says I know what's real yeah and that 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 like proves me right there it's like it doesn't even matter if he's a replicant or a human because he's like i know what's real you know i'm real right it, it doesn't matter but 
I don't know. And I was I was kind of thinking like, oh, maybe it takes two replicants to procreate. But then I was also I guess it does make sense for uh, a real legit human to be able to procreate. But at the same time, I think it is a miracle that it happened. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even the fact that Replicate was able to get pregnant is a miracle. And I would have to say that it, like you said, I know when Harrison Ford says, I know it's real, it kind of reminds me of the line from the original where Pris says, I think, therefore I am, when she's talking to J.F. Sebastian. Yeah, the Rene Descartes cogito. Yeah. Right, and I know, I was like, well, that's weird because <laughs> if they can like do that then yeah that would basically kind of make them human right you know it, it would make them this living thinking organism self-aware so i believe there's like sufficient evidence to say deckard isn't a replicant but i also believe that you could make the case that he is right and okay here here's what i thought when i first saw the movie and i realized that I, that's not the case now but in the very beginning, when Batista says to Ryan Gosling's character, how do you feel hunting down your own kind? And I was like, <gasps> the Blade Runners are replicants. They just answered the question right there. And Ryan Gosling says something like, well, the old models didn't run. And I thought he was referring to uh, Decker's generation. And so I was like, OK, they did it and I'm OK with it because I felt like they handled it right. They didn't make a big deal out of it. I thought that was saying that, yeah. All Blade Runners are replicants, but then later on, it's like, well, no, it's much more complicated than that. Um, but I really do want to come back for a second viewing to explore that issue because I feel like there's more to it, but I know it's definitely not definitive. But when I walked out of the movie, I thought it was definitive. I thought they, I thought Deckard was clearly a replicant. But then when I started watching other people's thoughts and now discussing it with you, I'm like, oh, okay, I guess it's not definitive in the movie right right exactly and yeah and I, like like we both have stated <laughs> there's not enough ev there well maybe there is and we just have to look even deeper into the film but from what we're seeing there is not enough evidence to point one or either definitive way there's evidence for both sides maybe that even goes to show that replicants have gotten so advanced that we're not even able to tell if they're humans or not. And that was the whole point of one of the things in the original is that you have tests to see if these replicants are human or if they're replicant. And even Rachel asks, have you accidentally retired a human before? Which, you know, Harrison Ford doesn't exactly answer that question, but... And she says, have you taken the test yourself? Exactly. And she says, yeah, she says that. <laughs> and so it's very clear, very clear that replicants are getting very advanced and maybe in this world we don't know because... In this case, they're already better than humans in their minds. So if they've gotten so close to what a human is really like in terms of personality, then maybe we won't ever know. Because if they're so advanced at this point that we have to ask the question, okay, are they or aren't they a replicant? Maybe that in and of itself is the best question to ask instead of is, is he a replicant or is she a replicant? It's more or less just like, you know, if, if we're so lifelike, then yeah. It becomes an issue. So do you feel that uh, Deckard's entrance into the film, do you feel like it came at just the right time? Or do you feel like it came too late? Because I was surprised to see that Kay took up mostly the whole film. And I was like, okay, this actually makes sense. It's a good thing Harrison Ford had his own movie 
with the first one. And I really liked that we focused on K. And I'm going to say it right now. I felt like Harrison Ford came in. At, they found him at just the right time. Oh, yeah. I'm, I completely agree with you with this one. Because I, I was wondering myself. It, I think it is, he doesn't like, come in. Nearly two like hours. A, yeah. He doesn't come in until, like, I think, hour and 42 hours or something like that. And so when yeah. he came in, I was just like, there he is. you know. But at the same time, I was just like, well, we've had so much to do up until this point. Maybe, maybe there's a reason why he came in so late. And then after when the film finished, I was like, he. I felt like Harrison Ford served just as much purpose as he needed to because yeah. he's not in it very long. It's only for the last half of the movie, and even then, it still focuses mainly on K. But yeah. yeah, I feel like he he came in at just the right time. Looking back on it, and he served a purpose that was near perfection for his character. Yeah, and I I would agree. I was getting a little worried though that we were going to have another Luke Skywalker yes, moment. Exactly my point. Where it's like, where is he? Where is he? And then it's like, okay. Yeah. But they they did it just right, and it was all handled appropriately. And I was I was uh, shocked, and it was a nice surprise. I feel like they did it. They handled it really well. Oh yeah, absolutely. When um. Well, when Deckard is at the Wallace Corporation, and just a brief side note on that, uh, the Wallace Corporation, we see the Tyrell Corporation, yes. and did you notice the Wallace Corporation was like built like on top of it, kind of, but it was even bigger? Yeah, exactly. That's when I saw that, I had my notes too, I was like, okay, this is kind of cool, they have the Easter egg of the, of the old Tyrell Corporation, and then it like pans, and you see, and it says, the uh, title card says, Wallace Corporation, I was like, holy cow, that's, that's big. big. Yeah, it's yeah. so much bigger. Well, when Wallace and uh, Deckard are having that discussion, and we see Rachel, yes, walk up, I was like, "Oh my goodness!" Yes, and he has, and... yeah. Well, he first has the memory of Rachel, and she's first walking in, right. which is original clip from the from the movie. Yes, and then that's why Sean Young got billing. Yeah, and then um, yeah. Rachel herself comes in as a replicant. There, I was like, "Oh no!" Like I was, this is so not good. When she starts coming in, I was like, it was starting to, it's starting to get under my skin. I was like, oh, this is so not good because they've recreated a replicant of a replicant now. Yeah, that's crazy to even think about. And like everything was right except for the eyes. Yes, exactly. But the voice and everything. And I felt like the, uh, I felt like uh, she looked real, pretty real to me. Like the original Sean Young from 35 years ago. Oh, absolutely. I was so impressed with that. That's probably the best that I've seen. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know uh, how they so even far. did that. Like, if it was CGI or if it was just some insane makeup job or what. But it looks so <laughs> identical to the old Rachel right. from the original from eighty from eighty two. That's that's thirty years of aging. So even if she yeah. would have come back, there was no way they could have made her look that young in my mind. So, and the one thing that I was thinking about because I was like, okay, this is eerie. How this. Yeah, this seems like the real Rachel from 35 years ago. But I was like, her eyes don't look right. They look a little off. And then Deckard makes the comment. And I was like, okay, good. It's not like they messed up. Because I was like, "Eh, what? Yeah, same. (laughs) I was, I didn't know what was wrong with her. But I was just like, there's something wrong here. Something is just, something's off. And it turns out it was her eyes. Yeah. So it wasn't a mistake on the movie maker's part. No, yeah, no, it, it was a le- it was a legit mistake to make her eyes brown. Okay, that makes me feel better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 
And I love how Harrison Ford, and it was right after that Harrison Ford says, I know what's real, I think. And yeah, and yeah then they just shoot her, they, and she's dead, and that's it. That was a jaw-dropping moment. Yeah. And that's something I really haven't said much, we haven't said much about. But the violence and action is, like, so heavy-hitting oh, in yeah. this. Like, with the sound, I, like, that's what the sound design really comes in. Like, especially in the beginning when he's, like, slamming him against the yeah. wall. Yeah. Oh, and then he like yeah he throws him to the wall and then like gets gets on top of Gosling and just starts beating the snot out of the guy. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Like, you feel it. Yeah, two places I want to just briefly, briefly talk about. Um, the first one is when he flies to San Diego and it's like that trash place yes. and like those weird domes and orphanage orphanages and those like trash people. That felt really weird to me. That almost took me out of the Blade Runner universe a little bit because I'm so used to, you know, the Blade Runner from the original. Right. And this was like pretty, pretty close. Like it was really lovingly recreated that world, except, of course, updated a little bit for, of course, because it's 30 years later. But with that, I was like, eh, this is. I don't know. It just kind of went to a weird place that I didn't expect it to go to. Right. Yeah. It, so. And see, I had the complete opposite reaction. It didn't bother me at all. In fact, I was kind of liking having okay. a new a new location to go to in the universe of Blade Runner. Now we have the city, or we, first we have the outskirts, which is like the farmland. We have the city, and now we have the wasteland. You know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. those are, t- and then we've added instead of just being you know just the city and the Tyrell Corporation. Uh, or anything inside of Los Angeles. Now we have two different places that we can go to now and explore, which is the outskirts and the wasteland. And I, I honestly, I love the design of the wasteland, especially when they go mm. into like that that slave labor, like when they're ripping out computer components from other wars and stuff like that. That the yeah. whole place is under a giant satellite dish that's just mm. falling on the ground, and it's just they that's use whatever they need, and it's really really cool. And it, it's kind of the opposite. It's the complete opposite of the city life because the city life at this point is getting is getting up to a point where it's like the almost perfect everything and it's like the perfect almost perfect utopia and stuff like that. Although it still keeps that greediness from the original that's still so present. And then they move off and here's the wasteland. The almost complete opposite because they're living on scraps essentially. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can understand that. Right. I would say my favorite uh, design and place was Las Vegas. Yes, that was cool too. That was just super amazing. I was really amazed by how uh, real the setting of Las Vegas was. Oh yeah, I I one hundred percent bought all of that, and I don't I don't even know what was real and what was CGI because all of it seemed real to me. Right. Yeah. See, that was my thing too. Yeah, the orange of everything, and just like the abandoned area, like the abandoned hotel, like just some of those shots were gorgeous, and I'm just. Like holy cow, this is amazing, and those gi- those giant naked women statues were bizarre. Oh yeah, absolutely. For <laughs> for the first part, I was just like, oh wait, are we going back to the original city from the original Blade Runner? And then it turns out I was actually wrong about that. It's Las Vegas. I I actually guessed it was Las Vegas because Wallace's right hand lady assassin. They're like, where where's the only place that he could hide that like a nuclear bomb went off? Right. And like she, I see California over here and then they scan over a little bit. I'm like, okay, that has to be Nevada. And I'm assuming probably Las Vegas. Yeah. So I I don't know. It looked incredible. And those, and even like those giant naked lady statues, I felt like they had a purpose because it just shows you like how degraded Las Vegas, like it's already pretty 
degraded now i mean they call yeah. it like the city of sin then it's really like that in the future right. so it totally made sense but i was so blown away and i i was blown away also it was an incredible fight when deckard and k were fighting yes but it also got me like really edgy because like when the electronics kept glitching but the hologram of elvis was amazing and marilyn monroe and then frank sinatra in that sony player i'm like oh that is so amazing yeah and it kind of just goes back and it's just like yeah remember the old times and in my notes yeah. i didn't know i didn't know at first that uh this was still set like this setting when this was made is still kind of new and so when he went in I had my notes like, oh, it's the old versus the new, you know, or something like that, or the the new meets old, or whatever. And then come to find out, it is actually um, still got some new stuff in it with the holograms and stuff. It's just made to look old, but yeah, it all looked great. And well, the use of color, yeah, it was great. Yeah, great use of color, great use of sound because you hear when mm-hmm. there were random times when Elvis starts singing and then just cuts off, and then you hear just like reverberating around the room, and then things would just switch back and forth, and it was yeah, it's. And I love this fight, too, because Harrison Ford just wails on Gosling for a while. And I was in my notes, I was starting to geek out because I'm just like, this is so cool, you know, <laughs> just seeing these two actors, that, these two great actors just beating the snot out of each other. And I heard that Harrison Ford actually punched Gosling in this scene. He actually got a, a fist to the mouth. Yeah, that's what I heard, too. Jaw. I was like, oh. That's what I heard, too. And I, I really like that, yeah, kind of the new versus the old. And I really think it was the perfect choice to cast Ryan Gosling because in 82, Harrison Ford was this young guy. You know, he was the perfect choice for Blade Runner. And now we have Gosling, who is also this young, you know, prolific actor. Right. And it totally felt like a, like a perfect choice for them both to be playing Blade Runners. And I don't know. I was so impressed with the Las Vegas sequence. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, they, they couldn't have gotten... I think Gosling is the perfect choice for this. He just works so well. Yeah, just amazing. And the other scene, and this is one of those movies that you wonder like, wow, we're on the verge of something huge, but are we going to go there? Right. And that's when they talk about the replicant uprising. And so I'm like, okay, are we going to get that in this movie? Because there's always that feeling in certain movies where they're kind of like setting you up for something like super big and epic right and normally the movies that do follow through with it are bad because i mean you can't do that in a movie because you're going to really comp compromise right that uh climax and achievement for just cramming it in there so i'm glad they didn't cram the replicant uprising in there and they probably also didn't just for like sake for the sake of like coming off as like cliche or something because as we've already talked about like this like oh we're starting a revolution and uprising well that's pretty common in a lot of movies honestly and the one that's coming to mind is hunger games and even in star wars the rebels are fighting back right you know right so that's pretty common and it was almost a little disappointing but we're not there yet and i can see what they're trying to do right with it so it made me question like okay well then how is this movie going to end right then and i felt like a battle on a smaller scale was the appropriate battle and honestly i was white knuckling my seat my heart rate was elevated during this fight oh yeah it's just this amazing fight where he's just like shooting them and he shoots them out 
and they're in the water. And I honestly thought that Kay was going to die right there. He was going to lose. I thought, mm-hmm. man, this movie's dark. He's going to lose, you know? Right, yeah. No surprise. Right. And yeah, my thing is, this is the scene I was talking about when I missed is the, when they were talking about the uprising. And like I said, this is a very integral scene because it kind of points to the fact that these replicants are now getting to a, have now become self-aware and that, you know, as you said plenty of times before, they think that they're now better than humans, especially if they die for the right cause and become like basically martyrs and stuff like that, you know. But at the same time, yeah, this scene at the very end is very when I was watching it, I was like clenching my notebook and I was just like I couldn't take my eyes off it. There were there were times in this movie that I didn't want to look away and take notes because I was so into the scenes and stuff like that. And yeah, it, this is it's kind of my problem is that when I did need to take notes, um, there was one scene that I missed. That's kind of my fault. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say that I missed that scene because it's a very, pretty important one. But okay, I do kind of want to bring up one really important question because it is talked about a couple of times. And, and I think it's really interesting. It said in the beginning, the police commissioner, I forget her name, but oh, yeah. they're talking. Robin Wright's character. Yeah, yeah, they're talking back and forth. Then Kay says, to be born is to have a soul, I guess. And then the lady responds with, you'd be getting along just fine with that one. And this is a big theme too, is the soul. And I know we talked about that kind of before with the original Blade Runner, is that Tyrell we thought was the original one who created the soul, essentially. And yeah, it kind of brings up an interesting question. Would a replicant be a human if they had a soul at that point? Because they're already artificial in the first place, but if we added, say, a soul somehow, we figured out how to do that, would that consider them to be a human? even with an artificial body or not. Yeah. We discussed this a lot in my course, uh, Theology and Science Fiction. And it was so hard to discuss because it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know. That's, that is like so, such a lofty like idea. Right. Uh, It's crazy. But there are two things that we can point to, to discuss this. And in the very first Blade Runner, the replicants allude to that they're just going to die and stop existing. But we do have a, a glimmer of hope in the end when Batty takes the dove, which is the spirit, and lets it go when he dies. And it ascends to the sky, heaven, whatever. Right. And also in the anime, uh, 2022, The Blackout, the main girl replicant, her name's like Trixie or something, she says do we go to heaven? And the other replicant says, we don't go to heaven or hell. You know, we just pretty much cease to exist. And he says a line where he says, living isn't life. I'm for life. Or maybe it's the other way around. Right. So he's like, just because we have life doesn't mean we're living. Right. And he's like, I'm for, for living because they're just these slaves you know and it's really hard coming down from like a judeo-christian mindset to say if if they're aware enough to question their like like eternal state and soul then it seems hard to think that they wouldn't have one because that seems like i don't know it just seems like very cruel of god somehow 
that he knows there would be this like creation that is like outside of his realm of like salvation or something it's it's such a deep question and i i hope it's one that we never have to come to right i just hope we don't get to that point and right it's like the question it's like so and and this is even like a prevalent topic today with abortion right you know it's like okay but does this thing have a spirit or a soul or something you know are we we may be like destroying the body or fetus whatever you want to call it but are we destroying its soul and ryan gosling says to be born is to have a soul and uh, but then we also see that Rachel was able to make, and Deckard were able to make a baby that was born. Right. And that means it would have a soul. So, gosh, that's so deep. We could talk for hours trying to decipher it. But what do you think? I see. I'm kind of with you. I don't know. Because if replicants are to a point where they're self-aware that a human soul or a soul in general needs to exist, then then that's even scarier, I would say. Because the human soul, comparative to what we think as humans, is very important and it's the thing that kind of makes us up. This physical, like the, we can have the physical body and everything like that, you know, but it's the human soul that is really the root of it all because without it, then right. we have an issue, of course. <laughs> and like you said, when it comes to the topic of say abortion it's the biggest thing is when when does the soul begin in this mass of cells that is to become a human or is it always there or was it because is it when the brain begins to have activity we're not entirely sure we would want to believe that maybe it's when the brain has activity but at the same time you still have steps before that that lead up to that and all this all kind of in very confusing things but when it comes to replicants and stuff i don't know and like you said, hopefully it's not a question we have to ask, but maybe in the future we will have to because if this movie, as we said before, is scary realistic in the sense that we have things that are doing things for us because we don't want to do them. And if that's the case, now we have on more like a small scale, we have you know a, say a, a smartphone that can do things for us that would not necessarily be we take more steps to do it you know like say if we wanted to send an email we would have to get connected to the internet and then get on our computer and then send that email and then all sorts of steps whereas on our phone we can just do it from there it's on the go and now we have it now we have personal assistants that you know can have us do things with just just speaking to it and so it in a sense we're getting towards that reality that Blade Runner has which is we now have other human, other artificial humans doing doing things for us now as regular humans. And so in that sense, yeah, maybe it is an important question to ask eventually because if we have things that are going towards the reality of Blade Runner 2049, what if they start questioning of the soul? And like we said just before, even one of the great philosophical teachers who was questioning reality itself, he even he stated, I forget the guy's name, but I said it before the quote, and the quote is, I think therefore I am. And the guy essentially is saying that I cannot prove or disprove reality, but one thing I can prove that is inevitable is that I am in fact thinking. 
which I don't know if that speaks to the soul or not, but it's something that is brought up in the last movie, and it's also very, very interesting because they're not, they're artificial, but they're asking those questions, you know? And so, I don't know. I, I, I really I really don't know. We both are kind of in agreement on this, where we're not entirely sure, because yeah, it, it's, it's, it's complicated. Honestly, not even we understand what a soul is completely. We have an idea, but we don't know exactly what makes up the soul and all sorts of crazy stuff. It's, I don't know. It's a tough question. And that was one that I had, the movie made me ask, which even if a movie makes me ask that is gotta be a something pretty good. You know, if it is yeah. making me ask a question that insanely deep that, yes. that we're having to ask this question of are artificial humans going to have souls or not? And that's just kind of the thing that I love about Blade Runner, just the universe that it has now, is that it has a future. It's not a future that's like the new ghost in the shell. And I, I know I brought this up in the last podcast. Thank the Lord. Uh, yeah. And I know I brought this up in the last podcast. But the reason I bring it up is because it creates a future that is not necessarily one that looks that real. The new one. I'm talking about the one with ScarJo. The one that came out just last year. The anime is different. The anime is deep. The anime asks the question. Exactly. What is it to be human? Exactly. And so, as we said in the last podcast, we can definitely see that that Ghost in the Shell, the anime, and kind of the original, and kind of the new one, I guess, do take off of the artistic style of Blade Runner, the original. So, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's it's a hard question. And I'm glad we just don't have films like the, like the old the new ghost in the show that has a reality that is just so far into the future that we can even comprehend. Now we're at the stage with Blade Runner where we can, where it feels like this is a reality that we're slowly moving toward, which is where I consider this to be kind of scary. Yeah. And I kind of feel, as I've already stated, the movie shows that humanity is so lost that they have just put themselves onto a path of total destruction but life and truth always finds a way and it finds the way through now it's found a way through the replicants and the soul is something that cannot be artificially created and we're seeing the replicants are actually no longer with the dawn of this child are not that was not created by human hands that was created in some miraculous way and so like i said this kind of makes me think that humanity is just it's gone it's done you know it's time is over right and these replicants are in a way the the chosen people or kind of the evolution of that i guess if that makes sense and i know that's kind of a touchy subject and one that's really deep and kind of above my pay grade (laughs) as to the chosen people but we just see like throughout the bible since this movie does draw upon that that God always had the, you know, the Israelites, the Jews as his chosen people. And then that kind of evolved into Christianity. And then it's almost like, well, what if there is some kind of, I don't know, what if they carry that on? These replicants carry that belief and faith on in a way that humanity has lost. Right. It's really deep. It's too deep for the podcast to come to a conclusion. Getting into that question moves us from talking just about the the philosophy and theology of this movie into just pure philosophy and theology. Yeah. 
in that sense, that's a whole nother discussion. And the fact that this movie is making us ask these questions is the perfect point that I'm trying to bring up is that this movie is so well made and has given so much care that it makes us ask these questions because these are questions that are important in the society that we live in today. Yeah. Which is something that I wish I didn't have to say. But the scary reality <laughs> is these questions are important. And I, and like I said, I wish I didn't have to ask that. But the movie, this is not a movie. This is a film. There is a difference. And sometimes I get oh, yeah. those mixed up. Um, Huge difference. This yeah. film... The fact that it's you know self-aware enough and it's noticing these issues is something that I find to be pretty risky because at the very least we do have a director who is willing to talk about a subject like this which is pretty touchy and very philosophical but at the same time it's a subject that that he feels needs to be talked about and I yeah. give him major props for that because this is kind of touchy especially when we get down to the down to the nitty-gritty of what exactly it means to what we just talked right. about. And a good film will nail cinematography, set design, acting, story, sound, you know, it'll nail all of those things. But a good film will make us question something about our life, our world, our humanity, and it'll also give us some kind of answer that we right. have to derive for ourselves. It won't spoon feed us. It'll give us a question that we can discuss and learn. It'll teach us something about ourselves. And Blade Runner 2049 absolutely accomplishes that. Absolutely, yeah. And what, I remember I was talking with my brother not so long ago before I went to go see this. It was the day before I went to go watch this movie. We had a discussion because at the time of this recording, he wanted to get into, like, major in film and so i began asking him i was like okay well do you do you know what makes a good film and we had this discussion and and so i we got to the point where i said okay do you know what the difference is between a movie and a film and he says yes and so we had we had a discussion and then come to find out he didn't necessarily know the differences between them he thought he did but but he kind of didn't and so i told him it's like okay a movie is more or less for the enjoyment of the audience. It's, there's nothing wrong with them. They're more or less going to be pretty uh, light on themes. They're going to be, they're going to have probably more action in it or something like that. They're films that are made yeah. for enjoyment and they're not necessarily meant to teach you much. Sometimes there might be a lesson or two in there, but it's not going to be the main point of the whole movie. A film, on the other hand, is almost the complete opposite. It's going to be, I guess, as we, as I would say to him, more likely going to be a drama. That, of course, I'm just saying that they more or less come out as dramas than they do action flicks or anything like that. And I said the main point of a film, though, is to teach you something about life that you normally wouldn't find anywhere else. It's the author's, not the author's, but it's the director's vision of his reality or something he, that he wants to teach the audience, which makes it very, very important. The film should never have anything in it that means nothing to the film. There shouldn't be any extraneous details in a film because everything in the film is going to point to one central idea or one central message, which is what Blade Runner 2049 does. This is why I consider it a film, not a movie. It's if a movie is meant for 
big general audiences, a film is very focused on what it wants to say and what it's trying to display. And one other thing I want to bring up before we get off this topic of the human soul is the scene I mentioned earlier when Ryan Gosling is looking through all the DNA and then Joy, his hologram uh, girlfriend, I think, I think it's a girlfriend, and I guess their phone doesn't exactly explicitly state whether she's or not. Um, <laughs> she, he turns around and she comes out and she's looking at it. And they have this, they have this interesting conversation about the differences between the human DNA and binary. And it was really, really interesting because she says, she, because Joy says when she's looking at the strands of DNA that, um, a, C, G, and T, that's what makes up a man, but I am nearly just two, ones and zeros. And then Ryan Gosling says back to her, uh, half as much, but twice the greatness. And mm. it's, that always took out of me. From first viewing to this viewing, I was just like, that, it seems kind of small that Denise Villeneuve would put this in his film, but I feel like it speaks great volumes because both of them are right. Technology now, which runs off of the binary system, which is one, which is one to zero on or off, right. it still can do so many things. And in this world that we live in, it still uses the binary system to create these holograms and these complex software systems that make up artificial intelligence and a personality. When you really break it down, it's certainly just a one or a zero. But at the same time, that relates it to humanity itself, where we may have four. A, C, G, and T, but with those four, we, that is considered DNA, that makes up a human. And mm -hmm. essentially it's asking, what is the difference if you really think about it? And this is one thing that I've always wanted to learn while well, in my field of, uh, that I'm in college for, which is computer science and psychology, is why on earth would we pick binary, the binary system ones and zeros versus anything else? And this film, in a very interesting sense, answered that question for me, which is because that's closest to how we how we are made up. The when we break it down to the really fine details, we're made up of four, which is A, C, G, and T, whereas everything else we make up on a computer, which is definitely something that's becoming a big thing now. Of course, is just one and zero. They both have kind of the same meaning, where they both create something out of something so simple. It's a very interesting conversation, and I wonder if, if we ever get a sequel to Blade Runner 2049 that it explores this in greater detail, because this I thought was very, very interesting. It was one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's very short, and you can almost miss it, but it's just, it's so interesting, the things that are, that are brought up just because of that small conversation that they have. Yeah, that's a great point, which, and I, I missed it the first time I saw it. That's why this movie will reward you upon repeat viewing. Absolutely, yeah. So I would say if you can, because I know some of our like fellow reviewers have brought up some plot points or some confusion, don't let that bog you down. I'm not saying that's excusable, but I'm saying this movie is really deep. Absolutely. And they do talk about DNA and, and binary and the correlation between the two and what's the difference? How does that, what does that mean for us as creators and creation? So I just think these deep philosophical and theological issues and even just, you know, technological issues, I think that that just really outweighs anything this movie may kind of 
I don't know, mess up on or oh yeah, absolutely, kind of get off with for certain things. So, and yeah, I, I don't know, but you just said if we ever get a sequel, the box office isn't looking the best right now. Normally, to get a sequel, a movie has to do super great, right, and be super popular. But do you want a sequel? Is the better question. That's true. That's a very good question because. Yes, I would love to have a sequel to this movie for it to explore more ideas. But at the same time, where's the end? Because right, you right. can only go so far before you start to explore territories you shouldn't have even gotten into in the first place. But also at the same time, you've over-explained yourself as well. Yes, And that's where I wish, I really hope... That Blade doesn't do it, which is over-explain itself. Because if there's one thing that we have absolutely adored out of the series, it's got to be how much subtlety there is to its story and how how its story and how subtle it is still can create such a great impact on society and teach so many different lessons and talk about so many philosophical ideas. From a movie, from both movies that are essentially just an investigation onto robot, onto genetic robots that are that are just bad guys. If you break it down, that's the that's basically the basis of the entire story, but it's so much more than just that, you know? And so I, I don't know. If Denise Villeneuve came back, I would be okay with it. If another director, let's say maybe even, if Stanley Kubrick was still alive and he came back and he did it, I would be okay with that. But if it was given to almost any other director who didn't know what they were doing, I would say even Christopher Nolan... Maybe, yeah. Maybe Christopher Nolan would be able to do it. But it's... I don't know. If we ever get a sequel, I'd be okay with it as long as it's in the hands of a director who knows what he's doing. I really hope they don't just hand this off to somebody else who doesn't know what they're doing. Because if they, if someone doesn't know what they're doing, that could really hurt Blade Runner in, the, in its series. And I think just having two films... Even just the one film with Blade Runner, the original, is almost perfect in itself. Just be its own self-contained story. And this one, even this one too, you couldn't even, you didn't have to watch the original to get what this one is saying. Yeah. Because it's just, it's what is written to be that way. And it's so nice because I took my brother to see it and he had not seen the original and he still loved it. And so, I don't know. I don't think so. I wouldn't really want a sequel unless Denis Villeneuve was coming back or... I know the director who knew what they were doing with this was coming to do it. And even then, I probably wouldn't have wanted to, I would probably wouldn't wait until like maybe a, a while has passed for that to happen because this is a very, this is very important. And just us talking has brought up more things about this movie that I didn't notice the first time. So I would say no. For me, no, there doesn't really need to be a sequel. It's, it stands so well on their own. Both of these films just stand so well on their own. That it doesn't, even Blade Runner itself didn't need a sequel, but Denise Villeneuve said, I think now's the time to make one. And he was right. The society had gotten to a point where it was perfect time for him to make a sequel, explore ideas from the original that still applied to today. So maybe in the future, if that still happens and they have more ideas from this one or the last one that they want to explore to, fine by me, go for it. But right now, no. There's a reason why these films are so spaced out. And that's because society has changed, because from before until now and that there are themes that exist in there that work still now but they can they can expand those and also you know you know of course what a sequel should do so yeah yeah and i pretty much agree with you 
And it, it is kind of funny because a lot of people were like a sequel to Blade Runner 35 years later. It's like, what are you doing? Don't mess this up. And I remember a lot was writing on this movie. Oh, absolutely. With the story. And Denis Villeneuve, he, he just was like, okay, I'm going to approach this, you know, with such reverence and such respect. And thankfully he did. So that we could get a sequel to Blade Runner that in certain ways and aspects it tops the original tells me that it's possible that we could get a sequel to this that I feel like if we did get a sequel, it would have to top this one. Right. And this one is like lightning in a bottle. It's like capturing lightning in a bottle. It's like so rare. It's so hard to do. And I think if we do get a sequel... It's going to have to be quite a while before we do get one um, just to make sure it's done right. And from what I heard, uh, uh, Denis' next movie that he's working on right now is an adaption of Frank Herbert's sci-fi masterpiece, Dune. Right. Which I uh, read recently. And if anybody can do it, I totally have faith in Denis to do it just right. And I'm really sad because David Lynch, this is a little bit of a tangent, but David Lynch did Dune, mm-hmm. but he had so much studio interference and technology was so limited at the time. And so, you know, David Lynch is absolutely brilliant. So I'm just praying if don't interfere. And it seems like there's been no interference with Denise films. Yeah. So far. And this is what happens when you don't interfere. You get like just these amazing pieces of film. Right. And yeah, we, this is a conversation we had before with the original labor and it's five cuts or five technically more, but five cuts, five main cuts is that there was enough studio interference to elicit this in a technical yeah. sense. It, and we said it would have stopped just with the theatricals if someone hadn't found the work print version and then opened up, yeah. opened up the, they opened up that bottle and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, thankfully they did. Yeah, thank thank God that they did because then we got the final cut out of that, and that one is considered the best version of Blade Runner. And we even talked about it and said, yeah, this is the best version because it says the most in in such a clear way that it it is it is the best version of Blade Runner to watch. Right. So as of right now, I would say no, we don't need a sequel, right. and I kind of don't want one because this movie is so amazing. I'm afraid a sequel would just kind of mess it up in a way right there are just some movies you don't remake and you don't make sequels to because there there just is there just isn't a point it's like okay i'm just so satisfied this is so perfect as it is i don't need any more you know don't do it this is all we need what's the point of going farther right. so as of right now i say no we really don't need a sequel but if Denis and everybody else who is involved comes back to do one in a few years, then I would be open to it as long as the story is just rock solid. Because, yeah, the end is very open-ended. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we're left with on the verge. We're left with a society on the verge of collapse. Uh, K, I believe he's dead at the end of this. That's my opinion that he does die at the end. Same. Yeah. And um, Harrison Ford. Uh, Deckard is now left with his daughter and the hand on the glass fade to black holy cow we get the same theme from Roy Batty tears and rain except this time it's snow exactly I was just like okay it's perfect they did it I was like (laughs) how are they gonna do this because I I wasn't expecting any kind of like tears and rain scene right 
but when it was snow and him just like you just see like the snow like melting into like his wounds and just him just like lying back and the music comes back and Mm -hmm. you see the father and daughter united i'm like oh and then it fades to black my dad and i turned to each other and we were like whoa (laughs) i'm like oh my goodness what what did i just see because I haven't seen a movie like this in such a long time. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just, I don't know. I grew up watching the classics and we just haven't had anything like this will become a classic someday in 50 years from now right. or whatever. This will be considered a classic and it is such, such a masterwork. So Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Blade Runner 2049? I'm sure that this entire podcast has probably spoken to how much both you and I love, love, love this movie. And it took me two viewings because I was dumb and I didn't, and I... I was scared. Yeah, I was dumb. and You scared me. Yeah, when I texted you, I was like, oh, we'll have things to talk about. You're just like, oh, no. <laughs> and Yeah, you're like, I'm not sure if it's just a good movie or if it's really, really good. I'm like... What? Yep. No. <laughs> yep. Come to find out, I had missed a pretty integral part. Oops, on my part. Ugh. Luckily, I was able to see it again. And yes, I'm so thankful. You yes, did. luckily I was able to see it again, and that definitely changed my mind when I started to realize a lot more things that I had missed the first time, especially that one scene. Now there are things that I would ha- I have to bring up that are there is at least one that is kind of I would say ear of. It was unavoidable, which is the style of the movie. Although this film looks amazing, I have to say that it does not look nearly as amazing when it comes to exploring the the city as the original one does. And let me explain myself. Because in the original, you have model work. And people worked on those handmade models and put a camera in that city and and filmed it on a miniature set because the set of the city was something that you could actually touch and something you could actually maybe even walk through. Maybe now that that being the case, it was maybe up to your waist, but at the same time, it was something that was there, something that was made. And the fact that it looks as good as it does and from 1982 impressed me so much that every time I go back to this movie, and I've seen it four times now because I went back the day before I watched uh, 2049, I watched it with a couple of friends and when we watched that, I would, even again for the fourth time seeing it, I was awed by the fact that they were able to pull this off and make it look this good. And for 1982 and the set direction and having just that sheer grittiness is something that I hold so dear to my heart because it looks so good. And I feel every time I watch it that I become a part of that setting. Now, with that being said, now, of course, with that being said, um, Blade Runner, the original, was not not the perfect movie. It has its flaws because and has its flaws. But at the same time, its world is so developed in such a great way that I love it so much. It's one of my it's one of my favorite, if not my favorite, sci-fi worlds ever created. And now with 2049, it's not nearly as impressive because you can make all of that that you see on a computer. And it's not necessarily tangible like it would be if you made model work. And that's kind of something that I figured would be unavoidable. And now, don't get me wrong, that's not to say that this film looks ugly in any sense, because it doesn't. That The style of this film is not, detra- is not detracted in any way by the CGI and how it's used. The CGI in this movie looks incredible, and how it's used is absolutely insane. But my problem is with it, is that there, it just not, isn't as impressive. 
And I'm glad the film doesn't try and show it off too much because a lot of movies that go to the future really try to show off their the technology that they have, like Ghost in the Shell 2016 with ScarJo. And, and one thing I was also kind of sad about is that we don't get to explore the city very often. It's more or less either interior shots or you're outside in the outskirts. Most of it isn't really inside the inner city. There's a couple of scenes and there's a couple of flybys past the skyline, but you don't get very much inner city action, which is what I, this is why I love the original so much was because we had all the inner city stuff and the city itself became an integral part of the movie. It was almost a character in and of itself is because of how well developed it was. And that was one of the things that really detracted from 2049 is that its world, although everything in its story is very philosophical and very thought-provoking and so heavy, the, the world itself is not bad. It's not bad in any sense, but it's not nearly as impactful, I would say, as the original. And that was something that I fear would happen and that ended up happening, but that was something that I figured was kind of, as I said, unavoidable. And in that sense, I won't detract from it too much from the movie because there's too much good here to have that be my thing that ruins everything, of course. And I'd say, in terms of issues, Jared Leto's character, although very interesting, I think one of my big problems with him is that he only spoke in metaphor, and that was kind of yeah. his entire being for being who he was, you know, is just all this metaphorical talk and everything, which is fine every once in a while, but if that's the only thing his character is based off of, then you have an issue, you know, it's kind of detracting from the character himself. But regardless of that, those two things are minuscule compared to everything else that's so good here. And after talking with you and talking about it in, like, in some serious depth and only touching, only just scraping the side of what else is in this movie just on our two viewings alone, the fact that we still have more to discuss baffles me because we went through some heavy topics and the fact that there's still more to explore here is why it makes me want to go back and see it in the theater for a third time because there's a lot. And one of the things that we were talking beforehand before we did this podcast is my first viewing, I feel like I got way too much on a first viewing that I should have. And when I went back to watch it again, I said, I'm not getting too much again out of it like I I'm not getting more out of it other than what I missed the first time with that one scene than I would have if I had seen it three or four times. This is a viewing of a film that I feel like I've seen four times now, although the runtime isn't going to be this bad. And, and when I was thinking about it, I was like, that could be a detriment, but at the same time, even though it's easy to understand, that does not mean it's a bad film. In fact, I think it's almost better for it to be easier to understand because of how heavy the topics that are talked about here and how important they are and how Denise Villeneuve wants the audience to know this is what I want the this is what I want humanity to see before we go too far, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. And even then, like I said, that's pretty minuscule compared to the big ideas in this. And I can't help but but just keep pouring out how much I love this film. And I can go on forever, and I've already rambled for a long time, but if I was to give a rating, it would, of course, be the highest of highest of highest recommends, and absolutely a 10 out of 10, because I cannot believe that I... When I first walked out of the theater, it was an 8. And I was just like, that's it. I'm not going back. And then, and then I went back, and then I was like, maybe it's a 9. But then we talked about it, and then 
There was so much that I realized that there was more here than I originally thought. And now looking back on it and how influential it was to my own life and how much it had impacted me in just my own college studies, that it had answered a question that I've been wondering my, I've been wondering for three and a half years and that it kind of gave me an answer. If a film can impact me in such a way like that, that's something that's special. And that's what film is all about in the first place. So absolutely, it's a 10 out of 10. Maybe that rating will change down the road. When I, that was like when I, when I watched La La Land for the first time, I watched it and I loved every minute of it. And the reason was because, as I stated in a discussion that we had, it was a film that impacted me for the time, for whatever I was going through at that time. And maybe later down the road, it might, the score might drop, but at the same time, it still impacted me emotionally in some way. And that's what this film does. And if a film can do that, it's something kind of special, I guess. So yeah, those are my thoughts. 10 out of 10, highest of highest recommends. Wow. <laughs> uh, that's one thing I, when you talked about the feel of and look of the city, um, that's something I would absolutely agree with you with. Um, I remember I before I went and saw it uh, two Saturdays ago, I watched the final cut with my dad, and my dad is like, man, this city looks so real. Where did they film this? This is brilliant. How did they even like think this up? And there is such a realness and a grittiness to it, and it's just such an amazing culture that you're just thrust into. It doesn't even feel like America anymore or the United States. It feels very like... They've gone back to like this old world, like marketplace, you know, trading. Um, it felt, it kind of reminded me a little when I was in Israel. Um, so that was just brilliant. And I, I think that is one of the shining things of the original movie. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it got an Oscar nomination for um, set design, I think. Could be wrong. I know it did get two Oscar nominations. But, and that is something that really is lacking. Um, we do see the city kind of imitated in this, but it's really not the same. And I think one of the best examples of the city in the first one is just just kind of like that, just when you're just totally thrust into it and you feel like you're a part of it, is when he's chasing uh, Zora. Uh, that chase scene is incredibly well done. Yeah. And yeah. just that claustrophobia of the city. And... I understand they tried to recreate it a bit, but it's like you said, it is too bad that we were not in the city more. And when we are, it's just kind of meh. Honestly, that's why I was just, it's totally different because in this movie, when we are outside, it's in like these really barren landscapes, Las Vegas, San Diego, um, in the very beginning, kind of with that farming area, it's just very bare and open. And Maybe that's trying to give a commentary that Kay is just kind of this, you know, lonely replicant. Like, I'm so lonely, but then at the end, they're like kind of all comes together and it's like, no, you're not alone. I know I'm not explaining that very well, but it is kind of this like solo epic odyssey. You know, Homer, Odysseus is trying to get back to his roots, to his home. He's trying to get back to his uh, son and daughter. I really see that kind of epic Homer odyssey kind of played out in this movie. So I think they're kind of going for a different direction with that. And I, I, you know, they did a good job with what they intended to do. I do think the sets shined in some other areas, 
um, particularly within the Wallace Corporation. Like Wallace's office with like surrounded by water, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like so amazing. And um, in the Now Playing podcast, they brought up that kind of being almost like a womb, I guess, with these like kind of like dark, it's very dark and you're surrounded by water, kind of like in a womb and these like right, warm right. colors and stuff. It's, I don't know, really amazing what they did with the the lighting and the art direction in this movie. But some of those sets are just like mind blowing. Like, is that is that real? Yeah, that's a real set, you know, in Las Vegas and in the Wallace Corp. So they did make up for it there, even though I really wish they kind of would have got back to the city, like you said. And something else I felt was incredibly epic was the sound. Yes. This movie. Yeah, we didn't really talk about it, but that's okay. Um, just the sound. I saw it in IMAX. And this was totally shot with an IMAX camera for my IMAX viewing in the sound. So if you have an IMAX near you, just try your best to see it in the IMAX or the biggest screen because it's just an incredible experience that I want to go back to. Just totally mind-blowing. And that um, uh, epic sound really played into it. So just incredible. And otherwise, yeah, I think this deserves a Best Picture of the Year nomination just because of the story and everything else that has gone into it is just so mind-blowingly incredible. As of right now, like I said, like you said, my rating could change, but just seeing it once, I feel like I can't give it the highest rating, but I am going to give it a 9 out of 10. I'm really feeling that it's going to be a 10 out of 10, though, once I revisit it, but I've only seen it once. And I want to give it a little more room to kind of, you know, foment inside my head with the thoughts and then come back and listen to this podcast and see if it changes. But if I do change it to a 10, then I'll make sure to put a note on the website and update that. But no, this movie is just, it's one of the highest recommends, a 9 out of 10. And I'm so close to uh, a 10 with this movie because of how brilliant it is. Just so brilliant with Denis done with filmmaking. I just can't praise him enough for that. But I really hope, listeners, that you've enjoyed uh, delving into Blade Runner 2049. Uh, that's what we want to do with this. We want to go deep with you guys with these discussions and really explore these themes with you. So thank you, Alan, for joining me. Mm-hmm. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. And uh, we will have the schedule up on the website for you to check out and see what movies are coming out and when they are coming out. Uh, We've got a really great, fun lineup uh, for you, and make sure to check out on October 31st, Tuesday, we will have our Psycho uh, Halloween special up. We're super excited to put that out. But uh, just keep checking the website for new reviews and social media. The new reviews and discussions go there. But once again, thank you very much, and I I loved this discussion. I mean, same. this really opened up the movie for me in ways that I didn't even see before. And I'm pumped to revisit it. I gotta go see it a second time in theaters. Do it, man. I'm telling you, it's, it's worth it. And that's coming from a guy who didn't necessarily like it the first time. Yes, I'm just so pumped. If you enjoyed this review, make sure uh, to share it with your friends, point people to us, and also... Check out our review of Prisoners. It's only $1.99. It's very inexpensive, but it does really help us. That's one of Denise's 
close to one of his first films, I think, especially mm-hmm. in the United States. So make sure to check that out. Uh, we go really deep. That's three hours long. That'll really preoccupy you. If you, you like so make sure to... how deep we went in this review, you'll like, you'll probably like how deep we went in that one. That one's even longer. Oh, so. yeah. yeah, that one's even longer. So make sure to check that out. And we, we're really thankful for all of the downloads and support. Uh, please share this with your friends if you like what we do. Uh, we also have YouTube and social media. So get the word out. Share it. Uh, we love doing this, and we just love bringing it to you guys, and we want to have a dialogue with you and do as much as we can. So thank you so much again for listening, and we really look forward to next time. In this world that we live in, what is true love in the first place? That's the most important question is if we can't, if we can have love that even actually I'm going to take that back. I don't know where I was going to go with that, but yeah, it has this theme. It has this theme of what is true love. That was just super amazing. Yeah, that was so amazing because I, what? I got to go tell my roommates to shut the crap up. Oh, okay. I was really shocked by how... No, I want to restart that.